The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on a supersized Squawk Pod. The SEC's crypto enforcement, the top financial regulator suing two crypto exchanges. The SEC is supposed to be a stable agency that it's not supposed to be a political... But it is. One of those firms speaking out, Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong. They're saying everything other than Bitcoin is a security. Well... That's not our interpretation of the law, and that's not what the position of every other country around the world, their financial regulators, is taking. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen weighs in on crypto, the debt ceiling, and our country's future. I don't think there's a trade-off between investing in America and doing spending that will improve the trajectory for our economy and running a responsible fiscal policy. And... The shocking merger between the PGA Tour and deep-pocketed Saudi rival Live Golf, ending a bitter war of words. What they were saying was, it's all about the trophies and the history. And now we know it's really not all about just the trophies and the history. It's Wednesday, June 7th, 2023. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cue please. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the heart of the most polluted city in the world. Right here, Times Square, guys. Yeah. Thanks to the Canadian wildfires, we have seen the, the worst air pollution quality. anywhere, the it, worst air uh, quality anywhere in the world. Worse than Beijing, worse than for, oh, for ozone, I mean, it's not, we don't have Just most, toxic chemical. We don't have... Yeah, uh, but the, the pollutants in the air. The, the, well, it's not sulfur dioxide. Yeah, did you smell it last night? Allergies are up. The sun looked real. The sun looked bizarre. Did you see the sun? Yep. I did. I that saw the moon the, the night before bizarre. it was red. I thought it yeah. was a reflection of the sun. That's not the case. Yeah, this is New York City, so welcome. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Meantime, the SEC filing an emergency motion in a federal court in Washington, D.C. last night, asking a judge to freeze the assets of Binance's U.S. platform. Now, that would be for anywhere in the world. That order would only apply to the U.S. holding companies not the unregulated international exchange. The SEC arguing that the restraining order was necessary to, quote, prevent the dissipation of available assets for any judgment given the defendant's years of volatile, volatile con- conduct. Uh, the order also seeking to prevent Binance from destroying evidence. Uh, Binance's uh, CEO, CZ, tweeting, clarifying the order could only affect uh, Binance U.S. if granted by the court and would not affect Binance.com. And we always talked about the idea that there's Binance and then Binance U.S. and was Binance U.S. a sort of marketing proxy to get people in the United States to use a VPN service to use the unregulated service abroad? So I, I guess the speaks idea to a lot of it. the U.S. regulators can't stop anything but the U.S. arm. Right. That's why they'd be seeking that's to all do that. that. That's all they have. The court hasn't granted that right. yet. We've already know that we know they've already been accused of commingling funds and moving funds from right. one place to place. You got to wonder if there's any more movement that's taking place ahead of a potential right court now. order. Interesting. 
Uh, we're also watching shares of Coinbase this morning. This after a 12% decline in yesterday's session. Comes after the SEC sued the company, accusing it of operating an unregistered securities exchange. Coinbase's CEO Brian Armstrong said in a tweet that the company would be proud to fight the suit, and he's going to join us right here in a first on CNBC interview. When this deal came out and all the investors ran up Coinbase to $60 billion, it was unregistered. They, they were unregistered securities. That we, everybody knew. This is your point. Right. It was f- well known by all the regulators that they were not registered, right? Suddenly yesterday, uh, it's, there, look, suddenly a, yesterday it became a big deal that they're unregistered. There was a new cop on the beat. If you looked back, Coinbase went public three days right. before you Gary Gensler took over at the SEC. It takes time to build What about the it. people was, that had $60 billion? Dollars. Look, he was pushed on this yesterday by the crew on Squawk on the Street. And they said, why didn't you do something sooner? He said, look, it takes time to build an investigative piece on this to really go after all of this and put it together. Here's the problem in my mind. Without being granted blessing. You, can't, you know, that you can't, I, I think it's... You move I, the goalpost, pull the rug out. We've, we've talked about investors. the idea that you're right. Gary Gensler showed up three days after this all happened, and Jake Clayton had been gone before this happened. So, right. this so there's sort nobody. Of, yes, yes, and no. There are commissioners at the SEC. The SEC is supposed to be a stable agency that it's not supposed to be a political or, right. uh, or, with a oriented organization that, like that somehow makes one decision in you know one day and makes another decision another day. Can't you cannot, like, if, no they, if the idea is there's a, the credibility of the marketplace, that's the entire business of the SEC. You and I would argue that what's happening right now, unfortunately, is undermining the credibility of all of it. Right. If you start doing that, how do you ever have any confidence in anything you do in the future if the next guy who comes in does something that This happens all the time. Like, talk to AT&T when they were doing a deal and look at the FCC and they changed the rules of what an actual illegal putting together of two different companies would be and how they would measure that This is different. It's saying that all of a sudden the unregistered nature of it is... It's brand new stuff. The rules have not been developed here. You knew that the rules and regulations... But what do you tell people that it had $60 billion invested? Buyer beware on some of this stuff. that, Not when the SEC signs off on it, and then a new SEC well, so comes in and it doesn't is, sign to off. To me, on here's it. the one distinction. If we were talking about a company that was not in the financial space, in the financial sector, in exchange unto itself, which is what Coinbase is, if we were talking about uh, a lawnmower company, um, you you don't assume that the SEC, the SEC could allow the lawnmower company to go public, and that they are not um, making a decision about whether the lawnmowers that they're selling are great lawnmowers or bad lawnmowers. However, when they are blessing the um, IPO of a company that's going public that is effectively a financial exchange, I think that there's a different, and maybe there shouldn't be, maybe there shouldn't be. That's a fair point. uh, But I I think there is in the mind's eye of people who are involved in this. That's a fair point. The other thing I will say is Brian Armstrong has a much stronger case. There is no comparison between the SEC's complaint against Coinbase and what they're saying about CZ right. and everything that's that undermines there. them that, too. It looks like they got, it looks like this to everybody. It's I, like I, I don't think there's anything the same. Scattershot anybody I think in crypto. Brian Armstrong like, can probably make a very big good case about how they'll but, say we're going to go along with this and register, and then we're going to be that, brought into the. That, that, to, that hurts the their case against finance, which is it? Uh, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. If you well, read the, if it? you read the actual complaints again, it's like well, they're finance, going after they're everyone. They, they ought to just focus on that then. Finance, they're saying, is a fraud. But I think if you are looking at setting rules of the road, Congress hasn't acted. I don't know why they haven't in years been able to pull something together I mean, and say this is what the rules are going to be. Realistically, they're not going to ever. Ever. And ever. that's the frustration. Ever. 
Join us right now, first on CNBC, is Coinbase's CEO, Brian Armstrong. Good morning to you. Uh, we've been debating this uh, at the table, but uh, we're glad to have you at the table to, to, to join in on this discussion. Um, help us understand from your perspective, when you first saw this lawsuit, uh, what your reaction was and, what, and, and to the extent that you have a defense, and I know you've, got, you've taken it to Twitter, but now you can take it to the airwaves, uh, what it is. Yeah, well, I mean, we were disappointed to see this complaint from the SEC because I feel like we've had a long history of being very transparent with them and really every regulator around the world that we've worked with. So even going back to 2021, when we became a public company, you know, before becoming a public company, you have to disclose everything about your business in depth. There was many back and forth revisions of our S1. And frankly, you know, they, they had every, all the knowledge then and they allowed us right. to become a public company. And then we're going through time and, you know, Chair Gensler has statements to Congress saying that he doesn't feel he has the authority to regulate this industry. And we're seeing conflicting statements from the CFTC and the SEC chair. And we even filed a formal petition with the SEC asking them for clarity about a number of points in the law, which they never responded to. And then this Wells notice and, and a complaint arrives. And so this isn't good for America. Um, it's not good for the industry, obviously. And we now need to go get clarity from the courts. I, I want to show you. Uh Chair, Chair Gensler was on CNBC yesterday. I want to show you a clip and get you to react uh, if, I, if I could. Take a look at this. In the Coinbase uh, uh, complaint, we note that they have, through the Coinbase wallet, you can trade 16,000 different tokens. And there's a lot of debate as to the use cases and whether there's any there, there. Look, we don't need more uh, digital currency. We already have digital currency. It's called the U.S. dollar. It's called the euro. It's called the yen. They're all digital right now. We already have digital investments, and you you have digital. You have entrepreneurs representing digital investments on this program all day long. And it's it's whether it's the big tech companies, the automobile companies, uh, you name it. It's all digital right now. The investing world. So what is the real underlying value of these tokens? And that's why you need full, fair, and truthful disclosures. Do you think this is about disclosures, uh, or do you think this is about the underlying currencies that are on, on your exchange? It's tough to know what exactly what he means by that. I mean, um, our self-custodial wallet uh, is not trading crypto, uh, the ones that he, he mentioned some huge number. That's happening in DeFi. That, that's not something that we actually operate the trading of. Our centralized exchange is really trading a much smaller number of assets. We've, we've reviewed you know, over 1,000 assets in crypto. We rejected 90% of them because we felt they weren't appropriate for our exchange. And about 200 of them are listed on our, our centralized product. And, I don't know, to his, to his point about you know, what's the there there, right. um, people are using crypto for all kinds of things. They're not just trading, and they're doing payments with it. You know, Ukraine raised $200 million, and presidential candidates are taking it. And it's a new technology that can be used to update all kinds of financial right. services. And we don't, we don't need the government picking and choosing our technology right. winners. Let's let the market decide that. Uh, when you spoke just earlier about the IPO and the IPO process and the back and forth that you had with the SEC, I think implicit within what you were saying was that they approved us as a business. And yet the prospectus itself, as you know, also says very clearly that effectively the SEC has not opined on the underlying business itself. And in fact, that the company can't actually legally say uh, publicly that that the SEC has. Do you agree with that? Well, they allowed us to become a public company understanding the S1, right? And so I feel like that's our moment to be totally transparent with them, show them everything about our business and how it operates. And so 
it's not great to have a regulator sort of come back later and say, actually, we changed our mind. Um, well, this but is already been, Brian, they didn't company. change their mind. We had John Stark, the former SEC Office of Enfor Internet Enforcement Chief, for 11 years. He was on earlier. He said it's very specific that in the IPO, the SEC does not bless, does not approve these things. And it says very specifically they could come back and say that there is additional um, regulation that's required or additional yeah. disclosures or additional filings. And I think what they're very specific about is you call yourself an exchange, you call yourself a broker-dealer when it comes to prime, those are things that you need to register for if you're going to be, uh, you know, either an exchange or a broker dealer, just like the NASDAQ or the NYSE would have to. Well, so a couple points. One is that if you're trading commodities, you know, that doesn't necessarily apply, right? We have actually gone out there and acquired a broker dealer license because we wanted the ability to trade crypto securities. There's actually, I think there could be a big robust market of crypto securities trading in the U.S., even though we don't list any securities today. Um, and by the way, I think you're right. The regulator does have the right to come, you know, edit their thinking at times and come back and say, you know, here's a new set of rules. And great, we'd be happy to follow those. The issue in this case is that we're getting conflicting statements from the CFTC head and the SEC head. And then the statements from the SEC are, are so, you know, out, uh, such an outlier. They're saying everything other than Bitcoin is a security. Well, that's not our interpretation of the law. That's not what the law says. And so, and that's not what the position of every other country around the world their financial regulators is taking. And so I don't think we really had a choice, honestly. We had to go to court to really see if this, otherwise this industry is just not going to exist in the United States if we warning, took that position. Warning there could be additional regulation is one thing, but, but you know, bringing enforcement action on something you knew full well at the time was, was occurring, that I don't see how, how all of a sudden you make that, that leap. That just seems arbitrary and capricious and vindictive almost. That is a regulation by enforcement approach. And, you know, we met with the SEC 30 times in the last year. They never gave us a single piece of feedback about what we could be doing better. We just got silence. And when we asked them, how would you like us to register? You know, we have this dormant broker-dealer license. Could we activate that? We, got, we really got silence. And so it's not appropriate for the regulator to come back and, and do an enforcement action if we don't have a clear rule book and clear guidance. Congress has not done anything. Is it your only hope that Congress does something in acts or that a judge rules on this? Because, they, look, they, there is case law. And, again, the argument's been made that if, if they look at these things as security and judge them as such, you could be subject to everything the SEC is saying here. Well, I, there's a couple of paths how this could be resolved. So one is, yeah, we go through the court system. And I don't think there's really case law created that's relevant to crypto yet. Um, in fact, that's part, that would be a good outcome, kind of regardless of what the court decides, as we start to get clarity, you know. Another option is, like you said, Congress is starting to act. So last week we saw the uh, you know, McHenry-Thompson bill draft that came out. This is the, the start of something really you know, useful, which is a clear market structure for crypto, clear delineation between what the CFTC and the SEC are supposed to do, clear consumer protections around wash trading and um, AML and these kinds of things. So you know, there's probably little details that need to be worked out, and I know that lots of people in Congress are starting to look at that. There, there's a few other bills being drafted as well. But, that's, we either need to get the clarity, I think, at this point from Congress or the courts, and they seem to have an interest in doing seems that. It seems hard to, to have government agencies, whether it's the FTC or the SEC, that really seem overtly political. It, it depends on who gets elected every four years. And that's not, isn't it stated somewhere that these agencies are supposed to act in an apolitical way where... Except uh, you, that you do the don't. commissioners and they are the commissioners. completely... The commissioners and, and then it's like... Always, every, <coughs> but that's the case. Let me, let me ask you a separate question, which is... There's no way this, is, this is all happening uh, against the backdrop of a uh, case that's very different, but still uh, in the news, against Binance, 
and, and a lot of these things are getting conflated together. What was your reaction to that suit? Yeah, well, obviously, I don't want to comment on any other companies, but you know, it, the, the timing was curious to put those back to back. Um, and there may have been an intentional you know, desire to conflate the two or something like that. But the companies could really not be more different, and the suits could not be more different. So you know, in Coinbase's case, for instance, there, there hasn't been any allegation of misappropriation of customer funds. Um, you know, I haven't been named personally. The executives haven't been named personally. Uh, we're, this really, the complaint in the Coinbase situation is really a technical matter about do you classify these as commodities or securities? And, you know, we're based here in the U.S. Uh, we've never operated a hedge fund or something that trades against our customers. We, all of our financial statements are audited, you know, we, the customer segregation of right. funds and everything like that. People can take someone else's word for it, not ours. In, in retrospect, do you think you would have been better off not going public? And, and I, I ask because I think there's probably a lot of public investors that, you know, went along for this ride maybe very well should have known that part of this was a gamble and bet on not just your ability to execute as a business, but that the regulations and the laws would cut your way over time. I don't regret going public. I mean, there's certainly some things about being a public company which are a little more difficult. You know, the private, the private marks and valuations, I think, you know, you can sort of defy reality a little bit for longer. Right. But um, no, I'm glad we became a public company because I wanted to go, I want us to go first it's not easy to go first. You're going to take a few arrows. You know, we have to educate the public market uh, investors. Um, we have to deal with the SEC. But that's what being the leader in the space means. And so we're happy to do that. Hey, Brian, I, no argument that you are very different than what we're seeing with Binance, the allegations that are made with FTX. Those are like flat out fraud charges. That is not what is in this complaint. Mm -hmm. um, but there could be some pretty serious reper repercussions as a result. It's not just a technical issue. Depending on how things are ruled on this, they are asking, the SEC is asking for disgorgement of your ill-gotten gains and to pay prejudgment interest thereon. They refer back to 2021 when you had $6.8 billion in transaction revenue out of $7.4 billion total revenue. It sounds like there's a lot riding on this, even though they are not alleging Right. Not any of the things that have been alleged in the cases against Binance and FTX. Well, obviously it's a serious matter, but uh, you have to remember that you know we list over 200 assets. The, the complaint just names 13 of them, so it's a pretty small percentage of the assets that we trade. And you know it's also worth noting that a lot of our revenue now comes from non-trading fees. That's been well, it's almost 50% of our revenue is from non-trading fees and. We also have revenue outside the U.S., which isn't affected by this. But so the $6.8 billion in 2021 that they point to from transaction revenue, is that what they are talking about? When they're well, that's talking that would be 100% of our trading fee revenue, I believe, in that, that year. And it's your but understanding that that's not what they're talking about? Well, their complaint only references 13 of the 200-plus assets that we trade. So, yeah. Let me ask you a different question just about, given, given the, the challenges you're facing, um, I know we'll put Binance in a different category, but... The challenges the industry is facing. Mm -hmm. um, for those who are invested currently uh, in crypto or thinking about it, what, what do you tell them today? And where do you think this all heads uh, over the short term, medium term, long term? Yeah, well, the fundamentals have not changed, right? Crypto is the most important technology we have to update the financial system. And I think 80% of Americans feel the financial system is in need of an update. It's too slow, it's too, too expensive, it's, it's not equal access for everybody. And so, you know, and crypto is being used for more and more things, too. It started as this kind of new asset class that people were trading, sometimes speculatively, but now people are using it as a new form of money and payments, and they're using it as new types of financial services, and even things which have nothing to do with financial services, you know, like identity and artwork and voting and governance, and it's kind of Web3, you know, the next application platform for the Internet. So it's still very early days. There's a lot of work that we need to do as a company to try to make crypto easier to use, more scalable, and yes, go get regulatory clarity. Um, but 
you know, I, I think I always tell people the same thing. You know, don't invest money that you're unwilling to lose. This is a new, a new field of technology. It's the, one of the most important technology fields in the world. Uh, but don't, don't speculate with assets that you're unwilling to lose. Um, I want to thank you, Brian. Appreciate you coming in. Thanks for having thank me. Thank you so very, very much. Cheese will be next. Coming up, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen joins us exclusively in her first comments after the passage of the bitterly debated but eventually bipartisan debt ceiling deal. Had the debt ceiling not been raised, regardless of what approach was taken, the consequences would have been very adverse, very significant, and very negative. I believe a recession would have been very likely, and we could have had a global financial crisis. Squawk Pod will be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Up and Andrew, Hugh. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Joe Kernan and Becky Quick. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen joins us now exclusively in her first interview uh, since the debt ceiling uh, deal was passed. Secretary, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Andrew. So uh, we're all trying to, I mean, the good news is that's behind us. Uh, but there's a lot in front of us. Uh, we still seem to have a very strong economy, uh, possibly a little too strong. Where do you think we really are? Well, you know, I've been saying now for almost a year that um, I see a path to bringing down inflation while maintaining a strong labor market. And I think the data we have seen recently and over the last year suggest we're on a path with those characteristics. So clearly the labor market remains quite strong with unemployment close to 50-year lows and very healthy job creation. But on the other hand, we are seeing some signs of easing pressures um, in the labor market, which may be important in terms of bringing inflation down. Um, The quit rate um, has risen slightly. Um, job openings have declined somewhat, suggesting a bit less um, pressure in terms of firms adding to their workforce. But um, overall, the labor market remains very strong, and inflation has now come down about 4% from its peak. And I think we'll continue to see 
uh, progress over the next next two years. But do you th what, what do you think unemployment has to be in this country uh, to actually and, and to have inflation actually level off? We keep talking about what the Fed can or can't do. But politically, part of that is a, a question about employment in this country. Well, to me, a strong labor market um, is one where individuals who want to work can quickly find work. Um, we've always thought an unemployment rate with four as the first uh, digit is a, is a very strong labor market. Um, clearly, Americans feel good about their job prospects. They're finding work quickly. Um, the, you know, hiring pressure, and it's not just a matter of the unemployment rate that determines pressures in the labor market. It's also uh, the job vacancies and um, how strong the appetite is of firms to hire. The economy has slowed somewhat, and we're seeing less pressure uh, by firms trying to rebuild their work, their workforces. But we still have a very healthy labor market. Wage gains um, are significant, but nevertheless, we're seeing a bit of easing of pressures. Madam Secretary, I don't know if you can take us uh, behind the scenes now that the debt ceiling deal is um, complete. How close did we really get? And, and I know prior to the deal, uh, you'd be asked the question, you know, whose bills were you going to pay first and what kind of preparations were you making? And I think you didn't really want to answer the question. Now that that's off the table, can you tell us a little bit about how that all would have worked? Uh, well, what I can tell you is that um, what I said and what President Biden said from the outset is that to protect our economy and our financial markets from catastrophe, um, what's necessary is to find a consensual bipartisan approach to raising the debt ceiling. And that was my focus. That was President Biden's focus. That was what was achieved. I think it's a win from the, for the American people, because um, had the debt ceiling not been raised, um, regardless of what approach was taken, um, the, the consequences would have been very adverse, very significant, and very negative. Um, I, you know, believe a recession would have been very likely, and um, we could have had a global financial crisis, higher interest rates for a very long time. So, um, fortunately, although our balance uh, dipped to very low levels, um, we continued to be able to pay all of America's bills. And um, there was, it's important to realize, there was a commitment um, from all parties in this negotiation um, not to default on the debt, to find a bipartisan solution. And I think it's a win for the American people that that occurred. And um, it's also important to recognize that Social Security and Medicare were protected. Medicaid was protected. Um, had that not occurred, 21 million Americans could have um, lost health care. Veterans' benefits were protected. And as important, now that our economy is operating in the vicinity of full employment, we're very focused on investing in America, strengthening long-term prospects for our economy to make it more competitive, to create good jobs. Mm. And the trifecta of legislation right. that was passed, the Chips and Science Act, the Infrastructure Act, those 
both bipartisan, the Inflation Reduction Act, um, right. the important but, yeah. things there have been preserved. Right. Madam Secretary, I guess it, not everyone agrees, obviously, depends on how, where, where you're sitting, but some people think a, a lot of that spending uh, contributed to the 40-year highs that we saw in inflation, with a lot of other factors as well. That contributes to a 525 basis point increase in rates. That makes investing in all these things more difficult since so much of, of what we bring in needs to be spent uh, on, on uh, servicing our debt. So it, it's, it's, it seems like it's a really difficult a sort of a conundrum uh, that we want to spend money on things to help, to help people, but uh, the more we spend, the less we have left over after we service our debt. Do you, do you think we need to to cut spending somewhere where we can so we can spend it in, in better places? Well, look, this bipartisan agreement just cut the deficit by a trillion dollars. And right. uh, the deficit um, fiscal stimulus has declined, certainly since uh, the pandemic uh, ended. Uh, so that is uh, supporting the Fed's efforts to bring inflation down. Um, I don't think there's a trade-off between investing in America and doing spending that will improve the trajectory for our economy and uh, job prospects. Uh, there's, there's not a conflict between that and running a responsible fiscal policy. President Biden offered a budget that has significant further investments in our economy while lowering uh, deficits over 10 years by $3 trillion. But revenue needs to be part of that discussion. It's not all a matter of spending. Um, I think we, in the interest of tax fairness and having the resources to invest in our economy, we also need to be uh, considering proposals that would enhance revenue while also controlling uh, spending. Secretary Yellen, we, we just spoke with the former Richmond Fed President Jeffrey Lacker, and he said that he actually thinks that we're going to have to take rates to 6% in order to really get inflation back to 2%. I think they have a ways to go. Um, I think they're well positioned. If, in, if the inflation rate was 3.5% and the unemployment rate was 4.5%, but that's not where we are. Uh, the inflation rate's closer to 5 It has shown no discernible or meaningful signs of uh, easing over the last six months. Um, the unemployment rate's going up uh, for sure, but it's still well below four. Um, I think they're going to have to go above six when all is said and done, unless they get lucky. And I think they should be signaling that to markets. Does that fit with your line of thinking? Does that seem fair? Listen, I'm going to leave the Fed uh, to make its own decisions about what's necessary. Um, consumer spending has continued to, um, to, to grow in um, a pretty robust way, but we're also uh, seeing areas of the economy uh, that are slowing down. And this is a judgment that um, my former colleagues at the Fed are very capable of making. Um, I, as I said, I think what's important is to try to bring inflation down. It's a top right. priority. Um, we support the Fed's efforts to do that, and we're making the contributions we can, prescription drugs, health care costs, right. and other things, right. and a strong labor market. 
Madam Secretary, I wanted to ask you about uh, the, the banking business, but as it relates to commercial real estate, there's a lot of worry, as you know so very well, about the state of commercial real estate, especially around uh, office and what that means to a lot of the regional banks, um, maybe not now, but come the end of uh, this year, early next year, and, and the implications uh, for that. Some people believe that there could be more bank failures. How concerned are you about that? Well, I, I do think that there will be issues with respect to commercial real estate. Um, certainly the demand for office space uh, since uh, we've seen such a big change in uh, attitudes and behavior toward um, remote work, uh, th that has changed. And especially in an environment of higher interest rates, um, I think banks are broadly preparing for uh, some restructuring and difficulties uh, going ahead. But um, I think s certainly stress tests of the largest banks uh, show that they have uh, adequate capital to deal with it. And I know the supervisors will be looking closely at a wide range of banks to make sure that they're adequately prepared to deal with it. But my overall read is that the level of capital and liquidity uh, in the banking system is strong and that, um, well, there will be some pain associated with this, that banks should be able to handle the strain. Would you be supportive of more consolidation in the banking business? I ask in part because on the other side uh, of the administration, I think the Department of Justice and, and the FTC in particular have been uh, very aggressive about trying to prevent uh, transactions, not necessarily in the banking space, but, but given how outspoken you have been and uh, the issues that may be unique and particular to the banking business. Well, I, I see strength in the banking system that has um, a diverse set of financial institutions capable of satisfying different needs across our economy. And we do have a diverse banking system with strong community banks, regional banks, um, large, larger uh, banks that are involved in global business. And I wouldn't want to see that uh, threatened. But um, certainly in this environment, some banks are experiencing um, pressure on earnings. And there is a motivation uh, to see some consolidation. And um, it wouldn't surprise me to see right. uh, some of that going forward. M Madam Secretary, uh, virtually every interview that we've done over the many years with you, uh, we've, we've always mentioned crypto. I'm curious where you stand now on crypto, because I think there was an evolution in your thinking uh, in certain ways. Um, maybe it's changed. I don't know. What's, what, yeah. what's, what's, your, what's your sense for the American public who's thinking about whether to invest in, in the world of crypto today? Well, you know, I th we recently wrote... Uh, Treasury contributed a set of reports in response to the president's executive order to examine the risks um, inherent in crypto. And we identified a number of risks, some of which risk to consumers, investors. Um, our laws are already strong. The SEC, the CFTC, and other regulators have the ability and tools uh, to protect consumers and investors. And I'm supportive, very supportive, of seeing those agencies use the tools they have. Um, I can't 
<clears throat> can't comment on uh, the individual matters the SEC is looking at, but I think it's certainly appropriate that they do that. And then I, I see some holes in the system where additional regulation, I think, would be appropriate, and we would like to work with Congress uh, to see additional legislation passed. Madam Secretary, very quickly, because I know we're going to run out of time, I have two very, very quick questions. Uh, one has to do with the global tax. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to get your thoughts on the fact that uh, the, the, the Republican Party is now uh, really pushing back on that in a meaningful way and where you think that really stands and whether that can even happen at this point. Well, I think the pushback, frankly, is misguided. I think this is an extremely important um, agreement. Countries are beginning to adopt it. Uh, the EU is, uh, is moving to put it in place, and other countries are as well. And I think this will stop the race to the bottom that's occurred over decades in which countries have um, competed to make, um, to try to get business to their but, shores. But is that and impossible to happen at this point? It's American business. Madam Secretary? It's all 25 uh, on the House Ways and Means. They all said that there will be retaliatory action against any EU country that, that you know, that, that's, they're saying no way, Madam Secretary. Well, is, there, is, there a, is there a way around that? Um, well, I, I don't believe that that legislation is going to become law. And I think that over time, as other countries um, adopt this minimum tax and put in place penalties designed to um, encourage countries that are not part of it to adopt it, um, that the United States and members of Congress will see that it it is sensible and appropriate for us to put it in place as well. So I'm in. I'm encouraged to think that over the next few years, we will, we will adopt it, too. And, and I know you got to go, uh, but Live Golf PGA, you're the chair of CFIUS. Do you think there'll be a review? And I'm so curious what you thought of, of that transaction. Um, I, I really don't have anything for you mm -hmm. on the golf situation. And I'm sorry to say I can't comment on cases that CFIUS is lo looking at. So... Is um, will Cepheus look at this case? I know the Department of Justice is looking at, at, at the PGA, of course, uh, in terms C of an antitrust case. Cepheus um, is very focused on national security. So would this, would it, this be a national, a national security asset or maybe a strategic asset for the U.S.? Well, it's not immediately obvious to me that this is an issue of national security, but I'm going to leave that to my um, colleagues uh, who participate in CFIUS to well, decide. What, what's, your, what's your handicap, Madam Secretary? Do you, do you, uh, you, you, you go right or left on the... Uh, I, I, need, I need a really big handicap and... Um, you need to, to, to play. Yeah. Ma Madam I Secretary, do. I do indeed. Do you pay your caddy in Bitcoin? Do you have any Bitcoin left? Um, <laughs> Madam Secretary, thank you U so much. U for U.S. dollars, the strongest <laughs> currency the in the world. Oh, exactly. Excellent. Uh, Secretary Janet Yellen, thank you so very, very much. And she likes the dollar strong. Yes, she uh, Thanks. Next, the stunning marriage of rivals, the PGA Tour agreeing to a merger with Saudi-backed rival Live Golf. It's a game change. Every incentive is totally wrong about what happened here, but keep going. Keep going. Keep listening to Squawk Pod right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, 
No one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. A surprising merger in the game of golf making news, the PGA Tour agreed to merge with rival Live Golf, backed by the Saudi Arabia Investment Fund. Now, these two competitors have had a rather ugly back and forth the last few years, antitrust lawsuits, and some pretty bitter rhetoric. Here's PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan one year ago this month addressing the large cash offers the upstart Saudi league was offering to pro golfers to lure them away from the PGA. If this is an arms race, and if the only weapons here are dollar bills, the PGA Tour can't compete. The PGA Tour, an American institution, can't compete with a foreign monarchy that is spending billions of dollars in an attempt to buy the game of golf. But yesterday, after the two sides agreed to combine their commercial business and rights into a new, yet-to-be-named for-profit company, Jay Monahan said this on CNBC. To have this capital at this point in time, with the strength of this game, um, there's just there's so much opportunity. And it's opportunity we have not been able to activate, but we will now. Stunning deal between the PGA Tour and Live Golf. Saw Phil Mickelson tweet there. There he is. Tweeted uh, yesterday. I mean, he's got to be. It was be a really good day. He said. So happy. They for get him. the two hundred million. Every every and every incentive was is totally wrong about what happened here. But you know, keep going. You know what else is weird is that the before they did this, people were saying, you know what, none of the live golfers have even competed in any of the majors right. recently. Suddenly, Brooks Koepka almost won the Masters yeah. and shot three over and right. John Rahm. and then he won the PGA. It's suddenly holy crap. And Cam Smith and. And you're a week away from the U.S. Open. Yeah, what does it say to Rory McIlroy? And all those guys. What does it say to Tiger Woods, who turned down $800 million? How about Rory McIlroy, who was right. the most, most outspoken of Did all of them, saying Jack that this is wrong, we're not going to take the blood yep. money. Jack Nicklaus over the weekend said, I don't even consider the live players as part of the game. He said that three days ago, because it was his tournament at the Memorial. But months of... I understand 9-11. I understand everything about it, but the world is... So complex. You throw in China and p- people trying to navigate what you're going to do, and it, you know, what, what it, I mean, money does, makes people do strange things. It, it ends months of litigation and accusations and brings together the biggest names in the sport. It also brings controversy. Thank you. Uh, the PGA Tour has been criticizing the Breakaway League over its Saudi backers ever since its inception, accusing the kingdom of trying to use the sport's popularity to sports wash, to whitewash its record on human rights. For its part, Saudi Arabia believes the PGA Tour was illegally using monopoly power to block it. And the new league, unnamed so far, will be chaired by the governor of Saudi's uh, public investment fund and PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monaghan uh, will serve as chief executive. The tour said that they will work in good faith to establish a process for any player or players who desire to reapply for membership with the PGA Tour uh, after the completion of the 2000. Uh, 23 season, and everybody's got an opinion on this, and we know what they're all worth, but, um, man, it, 
I guess five years from now, golf could be maybe even a bigger deal than it is now because now it's going to be run like a business instead of, but you know, what they were saying was it's all about the trophies and the history. And now we know it's really not all about just the trophies and the history. What, what happens to the players who didn't sign with Liv? I mean, everybody else gets to come back to the PGA with money. all the money. Yeah. They get nothing. Or are they going to make good they have to win and tournaments, try and pay I guess. those people, too? Because, look, this is about Brian trying to stop the animosity between the 400 top players, depending right. on where they were going. But it seems like that animosity is still going to be there if you don't make some of the other players. You saw old. Twitter. Did you see Twitter y- yesterday? They had those things where they, they superimpose someone's head over a dancing figure. So I, I saw them where every live player was like coming out. This, live players today dancing. And, uh, you know, anybody who took the money in and it looked greedy, but they did it for their families. And it, it, what would you do if you were... Phil Mickelson, you're 52 my, years old. You, you offer $200 million. My question is, is the PGA um, some kind of national asset? Is the NBA some kind of national asset, well, by the way? I don't know if is, you should bring the NBA. No, in. no. Is the Major League Baseball some money kind of talk, national asset? Money because, talks and BS walks at the NBA, too. My question to you, though, is, it, is, is a different one. Can it be foreign ownership? Is this going to be CFIUS? Yeah, are we going to get into a situation right. where all of these American leagues, we've had this great soft power in the world, actually, through sport, through sport in Hollywood. Are we, would, are we happy? Would we be in a position to say, okay, come on in and do this again? Do it to the NBA. Do it to Major League. By the way, those are 501c3s. We've given them uh, special antitrust uh, as protections. The PGA. As the PGA in, in, was a in, non- in the United not States. profit before. Um, golf courses, interestingly, in the United States have some very uh, remarkable tax breaks that are involved in how they're structured, if you know what's going on. We do a lot of things for sports in America, and, and I think we have to make some decisions. I, I'm not saying that sports are uh, necessarily as important as uh, microchips in terms of uh, our national security, but I wonder. This is not a new discussion either, though. I, I, I remember when the French didn't want play going into foreign hands, yep. and I said, oh, these French, what's wrong? Yep. But then the okay. Chinese bought our bacon, and it's a wait a second. Right. All right. Yogurt's one thing, but we don't want our okay, bacon. Do we don't want our bacon. What do you think about sports? So we've been. Why? Why sports? Di- why sports different than bacon? What about media? Media, you worry. I mean, look at the whole TikTok thing. You worry about right. infecting okay. our youth with with Chinese, you know, with Maoism. I mean, I, I don't want that. I think, well, I think it's complicated. You're worried about them taking information and, on on American citizens and storing it in China and what they then do. And that too. By the way, if you are the DOJ, which is investigating for antitrust already, right. to me, this doesn't make the case go away. It actually makes it worse. When you look at comparative advantage and globalism, and, and for years we said that, that you can't even question that we're going to do this. It's just obvious for the good of the world and growing the pie that we do this. Look how that's been reined in. Now we, we may need domestic oh, well, companies to keep our supply. You may need to and be very happy if she tries that's to block this mean. deal. Nothing, you know what? We've learned that Nuance might be the most important word in the dictionary, and, and, and they're gray, because there's black and white, and none of these things are absolute. You know, that's the one word I never use, because whenever anyone says absolutely, it's never absolute. Every time you ask a question to one of our guests, they say absolute. You say, is it really absolute? No, it's not. You're it's just absolutely your right. I'm absolutely, in this case, I am absolutely right, uh-huh. but there are no absolute. I like to see you get so animated about golf. You know, for sports, it has to be business for you. That's, that's what finally brings you Income into the... at CNBC. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so that's an... Like, imp- we have to the, have that angle, I guess. channel. It was a shocker, I got, I got to admit. It was a shocker. 
That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And here's what you can do for us. Tune in to our TV show weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. Get the best of our show in an audio format when you follow Squawk Pod. And hey, if you like what you hear, tell a friend to listen to. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 